Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed with Don Nicholson and me, Jaspreet Bopperai. We are extremely happy today to have with us Barry Brill, whom some of you might know from his uh, quite a great career so far. As a former minister with the national government, he was the Minister for Science and Technology as well as the Minister for Energy. Barry is a New Zealand solicitor and currently is also chairman of the New Zealand Climate Science Coalition. Don has had uh, more to do with Barry than me in the recent past and I'll leave it to Don to make more introductions here. On. Thanks, Jasper. And yes, it is our great pleasure to have Barry Brill on with us tonight. Uh, I met Barry about 2011 uh, and have come to know him through the Climate Science Coalition, which I declare I'm a member of the executive and uh, I'm happy to be so. So I've watched Barry's um, intellect and energy in that forum. Um, he certainly uh, is, has had more of a career than perhaps what you said, uh, Jasper. I think uh, he may want to expand a little bit more on his own. Uh, he's probably humble, but uh, he's d- certainly done a lot more than perhaps what you have just highlighted. And in fact, he has an OBE, so um, certainly recognised by by a royal honour. So it's a big deal. And um, Barry, I, I know you've got a, um, I think it's a law degree from Harvard. Is that right? Uh, I could be wrong. I have a business degree from Harvard. <laughs> Ah, business. My, my, my law qualifications are from New Zealand. Right. Okay. Well, look, I, and, and I know you've been chairman of a few other boards in, uh, in, in New Zealand that, or on boards that uh, we haven't mentioned. But anyway, you've had a long career. And um, I dare say to, to kick this show off, we really would like to ask you what your motivation is to sort of be involved in a climate coalition trying to expose. Um, what a lot of us see has been a pretty long road, uh, a lot of deception, a lot of, a lot of misinformation, a lot of big, big headlines. Um, and, you know, when you, when you get down to it and boil it down as you have over many years, it doesn't appear that the narrative fits the, uh, fits the, the science effectively. So can you take us away back to perhaps 1988, I think it was 88 or 86, the VLAC conference leading to the Rio Earth Summit and then just work through from there? Is that, is that something we could do? Yeah, certainly. Thanks, Don. Um, well, the, the, the whole question of the, the world's climate became of great interest to, uh, uh, to a number of people in the late half of the 20th century. And during the 1970s, there was a, a big push about the upcoming ice age, because uh, as uh, most people know, we are in, we're still in a glass, an ice age, which has regular glaciations. Uh, and we are actually overdue for the next glaciation. So During the 70s, after there had been a 30-year period of a slightly decreasing global average temperature, uh, a number of uh, 
particularly news media like the New York Times and uh, Time magazine, started taking up the question that uh, we were we were on the cusp of global cooling. Global cooling had begun, and this was going to be a major issue. Then there was a pushback against this by uh, a number of scientists who said, no, on the contrary, uh, we are going to move into a period of global warming. Uh, and that was brought to a head in a Senate uh, Select Committee hearing in 1988 organized by Al Gore, who was, uh, he was the chairman of the committee and uh, a colleague of his, Senator Tim Worth, who set up a meeting uh, to hear from uh, Dr. James Hansen. And Hansen is sort of known as the grandfather of global warming. He introduced this concept that because of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which has been well known for uh, for 100 years before this, uh, that because the amount of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere was increasing, uh, that there was likely to be a uh, a small increase in uh, in the average. Uh, warmth or the average heat of the, uh, the average temperature of the globe. Now, that Senate committee was has often been lampooned because um, uh, Al Gore's sidekick, uh, Tim Worth, uh, went through in the dead of night the night before and opened the windows to make sure that the air conditioning wouldn't work. And the meeting was held in the middle of summer in one of the hottest summers they've had in Washington. And all of the stage management was to make a big deal of uh, Dr. Hansen's evidence that uh, greenhouse gases were causing global warming. And his uh, predictions were, uh, were quite serious. They, they were primarily or to a heavy extent based on the expectation that the world's population was going to continue increasing at the same sort of rate as it increased during the middle of the 20th century. So that by about now, we would expect that we would be up to 11 or 12 billion people. And by the end of the century, it would be 15 or 16 billion people. Uh, and that this was going to drive greenhouse gases up to a huge level. Uh, and if those huge levels were reached, then uh, with each doubling of the amount of, uh, uh, of uh, carbon, dioxide carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalents, with each doubling, there's an expectation of about an extra one degree of warming. Uh, and then uh, there's the, a theory which is disputed that that one degree of warming will cause feedbacks around the world, largely increased water vapour in the atmosphere, but also other feedbacks, which will, which will increase that one degree up to three degrees. 
and that was the theory that uh, uh, that James Hansen put to the Select Committee in 1988. Well, uh, Al Gore. Uh, was really taken by this. He was, uh, he had, when he was at Harvard, uh, years earlier, he had heard a lecture from a visiting professor called Roger Ravel uh, from uh, California, uh, which, who had described this possibility of greenhouse gases increasing the temperature of the world. So he felt that he was, I think Al Gore felt that he was in on the ground floor of this, uh, often called Roger Ravel, his uh, climate change mentor. Uh, and uh, he pushed it and it, it really became the hallmark of his uh, whole political career, which uh, kept growing until he became vice president, as you know. Uh, and um, uh, fostered this notion all around the world. He had a surprising ally in the UK where Margaret Thatcher decided she liked the thought of this and agreed with uh, the United States uh, that a, uh, the UN should set up uh, a group of scientists to investigate it further. And that group of scientists was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, the reason why Margaret Thatcher was keen on it was because the whole theory seemed to be that we needed to wean ourselves off coal uh, and move to natural gas or to uh, other sources that weren't as uh, didn't produce as much carbon dioxide as coal did. And, of course, at that time, Margaret Thatcher was engaged in a, um, an almost existential struggle with the coal mining unions. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it all came together, and the United Nations set up the IPCC. And then in 1992... Uh, there was the what's called the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and uh, President George Bush, senior of the US, declared his intention to attend. And so world leaders from all around the world uh, decided that they ought to be at this uh, Earth Summit in 2002. And at that summit, it was agreed to set up the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. And so that's the body that was set up to, to uh, monitor uh, that the possibility that climate change might become dangerous. And that word needs to be put in inverted commas because the issue was then and is now whether the warming that's caused by the increase in greenhouse gases is at levels which could cause danger, that could be dangerous. Uh, and that's what the UNFCC set out to do. 
And of course, they have annual conferences now, which, you know, the last one was COP27, uh, to, uh, to discuss that. And that's become, uh, it's become a, a major concern throughout the, throughout the world. So, I mean, if you look at it, IPCC has been around for well over 30 years, over three decades. Even today, when I'm reading the report that they've released this week, the synthesis, the summary for policymakers, everything is likely, probably. With how much certainty can they say that it is anthropogenic warming or anthropogenic uh, emissions are the cause of whatever climate Armageddon we are facing? They still can't, can they, with much certainty? No, well, it's a hypothesis, uh, exactly. and the argument is that unlike most scientific hypothesis, hypotheses, this one can't be checked by experiments or predictions uh, because uh, we don't have a planet B, uh, and uh, therefore it can only be uh, done by, uh, by wait-and-see method. The C method has not been very productive for them because there were uh, an enormous number of predictions made, including by James Hansen at his 1988 meeting in the, uh, before the US Senate. Uh, and then the predictions made by the uh, first uh, assessment report by the IPCC in 1991. They do reports about every seven years, uh, and their first 1991 report said that they could find no uh, evidence of human uh, contribution uh, to the warming that had been observed up to that point in 1991. Uh, but the theory, as far as the, the one degree for doubling of greenhouse gases, uh, was was not really in dispute. Uh, but of course, that was a long way from the dangerous level. If there was only ever going to be a, a warming of one degree, then there was nothing really much to worry about. So the rest of it was theory and it was unprovable uh, and it has remained unprovable up to the present day. They have so, models, of course, and that's really what this, the science of climate change uh, is all about. Uh, they have uh, about 112 different models. Uh, <laughs> none of them are right. Uh, but they say that the average of the 112 models uh, uh, is likely to be right. Uh, and so we get these, um, uh, these assertions throughout IPCC reports that some things are very likely, some things are extremely likely, uh, other things are only like uh, uh, unlikely, uh, and some things are very unlikely. Now, uh, including uh, the impact on uh, on uh, cyclones and uh, uh, and rainfall. However, 
that's what we're dealing with is uh, models which can't be verified uh, and are um, recognised that none of them are right, but the average of the models is taken to be as close as we can get to being right. So that's what, when you hear that a, uh, a projection is being made about what future temperatures will be, then that will be the average of a vast number of model runs by what they call CPI-6, uh, which are highly sophisticated models, uh, and they take the average, and, and that's what we have as the projection of future temperature. So, so Barry, that's a great um, scenario, a great scene setter for us. Um, take us to New Zealand now. I, you still didn't tell me why you're interested in all this for a start off. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you've got this knowledge and uh, you even wanted to be involved. Something obviously has tweaked your, or piqued your interest, so um, you might want to allude to that. But in, in, a, in a nutshell, sort of how did New Zealand, I know we were at the Earth Summit in uh, 92, it seemed to take a bit of a time before uh, we signed into the Kyoto Protocol. There seemed to be a bit of toing and froing, and uh, you know what was the fervor didn't seem to be so intense uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands as it's grown to be in recent in the last decade. Say to do something about nothing, perhaps um, we've just got to do something. We're at tipping point here, tipping point there. Um, how did New Zealand morph into uh, the regime we've got now, where uh, we've we've put all this anxiety within within our within our um, society, let alone our farmers? Well, uh, I was first. Uh, my interest in it was peaked, as you put it, uh, in two thousand and seven eight, uh, when. Um, because of my background in energy, uh, apart from the time when I was a, a minister in that portfolio, I had been on the Petrocorp Board of Directors and I'd been chairman of the Natural Gas Council and later I was chairman of uh, the Wainamata Electricity in Power New Zealand. So I'd become quite involved in energy in all its forms, most of those forms being uh, either hydro or fossil fuels. Uh, and I wanted to get a feel for what was happening as the heat was building towards the 2009 Copenhagen, Copenhagen summit. Uh, but what, what particularly intrigued me was that every time you got close to finding out what the science was, it would you couldn't get your hand on it it would float away. And every time you tried to get a cost benefit study, so all right, well, let's assume the science is right. Now, trying to do something about this is obviously going to be extremely costly. So what are the benefits? Now, if we do X or Y or Z, will that reduce the temperature by one degree, by half a degree? Nobody would answer the questions. <laughs> it was always too slippery. So I then uh, had occasion 
because uh, I was president of the Manufacturers uh, Association at the time, and I had occasion to uh, chair a meeting where we had a speaker called Christopher Freitas, who was a professor at Auckland University. And De Freitas was a skeptic. Uh, he had very real doubts about all of the, uh, the media coverage, uh, which was, uh, was pushing just one side of the argument uh, all of the time. Uh, and uh, that's, I guess, where I, uh, I gradually became convinced that there was uh, an awful lot of um, rhetoric here, which was very poorly based uh, on, on facts, uh, that, as with most things, there was a grain of truth, uh, but that grain seemed to me to be stretched to way beyond breaking point. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to, to learn more about it. And um, the more I learned, the more interested I became. So, so, so great. So when uh, the hockey stick is something that's often talked about, the man hockey stick, when did that appear in the... Uh, in the national sort of um, um, science output or, or yeah, pseudoscience output, you might call. When did that occur? Because that seemed to be the, uh, it's when people started spinning their wheels. And I remember a guy saying to me, Don, if this is um, what it really is, we really do have to do something. And this guy was a high pad director in a, in a farm organization. And he said, Don, if it's like this, we definitely have got to act. So when did that, I think it was around 2008, 2010, some, sometime there. No, it was a bit earlier than that. Uh, it was the actual, uh, it, it appeared as the cover uh, graphic of the 2002 uh, third assessment report for the IPCC. Uh, and uh, Mann actually published it, I think, in 1999, but it became... Uh, it was picked up by the IPCC in 2000. And then it became, because the, the first assessment report and second assessment report hadn't been able to find any evidence of human causation. And then the third assessment report was basically built around uh, the man hockey, hockey stick uh, on the basis that this extraordinary uh, an unprecedented uh, increase in temperatures could not be explained by any other uh, available uh, explanation uh, other than that it was being caused by human-caused emissions. Uh, and, of course, if you look at the hockey stick with its uh, almost vertical handle to the, to the hockey stick, uh, it really is startling. Uh, but that was great for a very short period before uh, some people, and this is the way science is supposed to work, somebody puts a proposal out there and then others comment on it and try to replicate it and then start to rebut it. Uh, and gradually we move closer and closer to the truth. Well, what happened, by this time, we had 
the governments of the world, including New Zealand, uh, were all signed up members of the IPCC. Uh, and the way the IPCC works is that the scientists, it, it, there's a lot of different groups make up the IPCC. The only one that's really made up of scientists is Working Group One, and they publish a report which is called the Physical Science. And then there are all these other working groups and PR people and uh, commentators uh, who, who are not physical scientists. Well, it was the Group One's adoption of uh, Michael Mann's hockey stick in 2002, 2001-2, which, which has changed the whole uh, landscape. Uh, and uh, if that hockey stick had have stood up to scrutiny, uh, then you would have expected, um, uh, you know, that a great deal, a great deal more acceptance around the world of the uh, of James Hansen's global warming theory. But of course, what happened is that the hockey stick did not stand up to scrutiny. In fact, it crashed and burned, uh, and that, to, to the astonishment, I think, of a good many people. Uh, this wasn't publicised. It wasn't picked up by the media, uh, nor by uh, by governments around the world, uh, and it started to become apparent that the time for science had passed. It had now become political, uh, and uh, everybody who mattered amongst the media and political elite of the world were on the Al Gore bandwagon and nothing was going to change that. Uh, it, because, I mean, if you're really, if you're interested in the, in the hockey stick, and it is, it is really important, uh, there's a, a book written about it by a fellow called Andrew Montfort, which, which, which really brings home how, how it was totally exploded by this uh, uh, geologist called uh, McIntyre, a Canadian, and another professor called McKittrick, uh, both Canadians, and the two of them did a critique of the uh, statistical basis that had been used by Michael Mann. Now, Michael Mann's not a statistician, he's a climate scientist, uh, these guys, particularly McKittrick, uh, are statisticians, uh, and they uh, showed that the, the method that had been used by Michael Mann would make a hockey stick out of anything. Right? <laughs> Whatever the data was, you were going to get a hockey stick if you used the method that Michael Mann used. So that became the subject of an inquiry by the Congress in the United States, and they decided that uh, they should set up a, uh, an expert committee chaired by the president at the time of the, uh, of the U.S. Statistical Association. Uh, and that committee laboured for some time and reported back to Congress that McIntyre was right and Mann was wrong. So 
if ever you needed a total rebuttal of the hockey stick, you had it right there, that the statisticians, the, the specially set up committee reported back to Congress that it was, uh, that McIntyre was right and that the method used was faulty. So we never, we never heard a word of that here, did we, Barry? I was in New Zealand around that time. And for anyone who is listening in, so this is, you're talking about Professor Michael Mann and his graph that showed a steep rise in uh, global temperatures because for whatever his measurements were, but he was looking at about 180 years of the Earth's existence from somewhere around, I think, four to five billion years. I also remember, it was it around 2010 that they spoke about the climate gate emails being released and the University of East Anglia, because I have followed, um, he's now deceased, Keith Briffer, who doubted right. Michael Mann's findings. And he was on the panel writing that IPCC report, but um, the emails, and I don't remember the exact wording, but what he was told was, that your findings are going to let, and I know this word was used, field day, that the skeptics are going to have a field day, Keith, because he said the tree rings that I'm seeing, this pattern that Michael Mann's graph, the hockey stick is uh, showing, is not matched, but there was nothing uh, further said about that in New Zealand media, at least. And, you know, surprise, surprise, Michael Mann, he is coming to Auckland on the 26th of May, and Ticketek are selling tickets for anyone who might be interested. And the blurb with is selling his tickets, um, a meet and greet with Professor Michael Mann is $249. And it says, if your idea of a fun night out is diving into what a climate conscious future looks like, this one is for you. Michael Mann's work is revolutionary in elevating our understanding of global temperatures historically and where we are headed next. He pioneered the statistical work for the hockey stick graph, has authored more than 2,000 peer-reviewed publications, and is currently directing the University of Pennsylvania's new center for science, sustainability, and media. And media is, am I... Am I mad or is there something wrong? You have science and media, they come in the same center. Don? Well, I hope you're not going to waste your money and buy tickets. Uh, no doubt uh, you'd, you'd be with a whole lot of people that wouldn't be your friends. So um, I, I'm amazed that they can turn this into a celebrity performance. But um, you know, Barry, I'm, I'm not sure he's going to be one of the attendees. No, I think Barry's going for a much better holiday. And you might be, are you going to be taking the climate, uh, the temperature graphs in Africa, Barry, when you're in Somalia? Well, I, I think it's, I, I think it's uh, uh, counterproductive for, uh, for those who say that climate science is at the root of uh, our concerns. Uh, this fellow, Michael Mann, he is a Paleo scientist, right? His expertise is in tree rings looking back and the statistical analysis of those tree rings and how to do it. Now, uh, I can hardly imagine a less fun night than <laughs> spending three hours hearing about the 
equations that are used to uh, to uh, establish how these proxy um, inputs, the data from uh, tree rings, from ice cores and so forth, can all be massaged into an outcome. And all of that is extremely uh, profound science. It is not entertainment. And yet here we have Michael Mann is coming to Auckland to give you a fun night. Well, he's not going to talk about science. He's going to talk about, he's going to give you high rhetoric. He's an absolute activist, right? The, the, uh, the Climate Gate emails showed that he was even more vicious than the uh, yeah. people from uh, uh, East Anglia, um, Jones and, uh, and co., uh, their target in Climate Gate was the editor of a journal who had dared to publish a sceptical article. And that editor was Christa Freitas, uh, the person whom I mentioned before, the professor from Auckland University. And they were determined to, instead of uh, studying the science of climate, they were studying the politics of how to get rid of a a scientific journal editor who had broken ranks and published a sceptical paper and how they were going to achieve it. Well, they did achieve it. Uh, Christopher Freitas, Professor De Freitas, was uh, uh, removed as editor of that journal. And the same thing has happened to every other editor of any journal that has tried to stand up to that um, uh, mongrel mob of climate scientists, <laughs> including uh, Michael Mann. Now, he's a, a climate activist, an entertainer. Uh, he's certainly not coming to Auckland to talk about climate science. Right. And, you know, you, you highlight a good point there, Barry. Uh, there's been men, you know, and I know that we um, don't all we're not all immortal, but we've lost some really good names in the last 10 years that were fighting the good fight here, like Bob Carter, like Vincent Gray and others. And, of course, we've had the Peter Red fiasco in Australia and the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, it, it's incredible how politicised all this has become and how, you know, the, the, the money that's being made on one side of the equation uh, just beggars belief. And you're right, if they can get celebrity status um, and raise some cash and, and keep uh, gratifying themselves, it seems um, it seems it's it's fair game. Can we just go on to um, some articles that you... I, I started studying again your background last night, of course, and doing a bit of preparation for this, and you wrote a letter, uh, an article for Quadrant online in 2011 called Methane Myths and Misrepresentations, and you wrote... Um, the claimed justification is that an ETS levy is an insurance policy against possi the possibility that methane might contribute to a future of dangerous global warming as the IPCC has theorised. But, but as with any insurance, it should not be taken out unless the premium is reasonably commensurate with the risk being hedged. The obvious problem is that nobody can quantify uh, the value or at risk or the cost of the premium or the scope of the coverage or the likelihood of the event. The article deals, uh, this article deals with the last three. Now, my point is this, um, that was 2011, 12 years on, we still don't know what the insurance premium will cost and we still don't know much actually. 
um, the net zero 2050 targets are unconstituted. Uh, uh, in the States, I, I heard some um, Senator John Kennedy interview uh, a banker and uh, a couple of other um, high flyers in Washington, and he got out of them that it would be 20, uh, 50 trillion by 2050. Then I read an article that, this morning um, on smart cities, a conference on smart cities, and uh, they talked about the investment required by 2030 globally will be 90 trillion by 2030. I mean, where do these people pluck these figures from? Um, and clearly, um, my, my point is, I don't think anyone knows. So um, these figures are just fear factor fodder. Uh, and in the end, what is our insurance policy? Surely the insurance policy, uh, it looks like, um, should be zero or close to zero because um, it looks like the deck of cards has fallen, as has been indicated recently by the IPCC's change in the representative concentration pathway numbers that we should talk about as well. Anyway, that was a long diatribe. Uh, your article in 2011, to me, rings true to an article I've read in recent times from the likes of Happer and Van Wingarden and others who talk about the um, effect of methane uh, is so minuscule that you can hardly measure it in centuries. Uh, the degrees change in, in, in 100 years. So why would we bother? Um, the insurance policy looks like it should cost zero. Right. Well, there's a, quite a lot of meat and all that done. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you, you mentioned that you saw the Louisiana senator uh, questioning uh, a, a couple of leading uh, academics about the, um, uh, the cost and the benefit of um, uh, uh, reducing emissions uh, in the United States. And uh, I saw that uh, as well, that clip. Uh, and yes, the answer was that the cost would be $50 trillion. And I see, I was interested in that number. I see it is greater than the GDP of every country in the world. Good Lord. Uh, it's more money annually than is spent by every country in the world on both education and health combined. So what we're talking about here is absolutely mind-boggling costs, in fact, impossible costs, because if we're going to divert all of our education money and all of our health money to fighting climate change, uh, then uh, there won't be anything left to keep us alive. Uh, so the, the whole thing is uh, it, just spun off its axis. It's, it's, got, it's, got, it's departed from reality. It's, it's lost contact with common sense. But $50 trillion is the figure, and it was um, derived from work done by McKinsey, and McKinsey are the world's uh, most famous and largest firm of consultants. Uh, and that's what they say is the cost. Now, on the other hand, what's the benefit? Well, Senator Kennedy asked that question as well. And both of the 
uh, witnesses said they don't know. They couldn't put a figure on it. So we don't know whether it is 10 trillion or 1 trillion or no trillions. And yet we are being urged, do it, do it. Spend the 50 trillion. Who cares what the benefit is? You know, it's crazy stuff. In some other countries, there is people questioning, you know, we have a Malcolm Roberts in Australia, we have others in the US and quite a few in the EU, firebrand politicians. How come nobody in New Zealand questions? Do we have an opposition here? And National Party, we keep talking about, you know, at least I'm a farmer, Don, rural sector, everyone says, you know, vote blue, it'll all be good. But if I just look back to what happened in a couple of, was it last month, when uh, in the course of one afternoon, Maureen Poo was re-educated, honestly, what are we, a banana republic? Uh, is there any point even in uh, what do you choose between these two? And I might be putting well, you on the spot here with your background, Barry. Feel free not to answer this. I, I, uh, I thought that was astonishing uh, because uh, Maureen Pugh wasn't uh, like Malcolm Roberts or uh, others who have spoken out against uh, the climate change mania. Um, she was asking a question. Uh, and because she asked the question, she got poured back in her bottle in, a, in, an, in a, an amazing way. Uh, the National Party has always prided itself on the fact that um, uh, you're entitled to have your own views if you're a national MP, whereas the Labour Party requires you to sign up uh, to follow whatever Labour Party policy is. But the National Party, as far as I know, doesn't have a policy that you have to ask no questions about climate change. And yet uh, the, uh, the leader of the party, the new leader of the party, responded to her by saying, I believe in climate change. Now, that's not a, a scientific statement. That's a statement of faith. I believe in climate change. And I thought it was most unfortunate that he, he didn't raise an argument based on data or science. He raised an argument based on belief uh, and virtually demanded that uh, Maureen Pugh retract. Now, she, uh, she was then given a copy of the IPCC report, right? <laughs> now, you know, that's at least 3,000 pages. Uh, and uh, she absorbed those 3,000 pages in an hour and uh, retracted. Now, I wrote to uh, Chris uh, and to Maureen Pugh asking them if they could give me the page number that was so convincing. <laughs> Because I've been reading those IPCC reports and I've you even give me a chapter number. Was it chapter 11 or chapter 9? And what page? Uh, I have not received a reply from either of them. 
Well, you're a brave man reading all those reports, as you as you clearly have done. Um, I'd rather go to purgatory, I think, and it's, perhaps that's where they are uh, at the moment. But interestingly, you bring that up because I thought that humiliation was about as bad as it can get by a leader in the public. But it happened, intriguingly, it happened in Australia. Um, uh, perhaps two years ago, Craig Kelly was a senator for Hughes in Sydney, and he was um, taken out of the Liberal Party before the election because he made some statements uh, on Piers Morgan's show in the UK about, about global warming and climate change. And Morgan ate him up and spat him out. And of course, Scott Morrison dismissed him. Um, the guy did nothing wrong. He was doing the same sort of work as Malcolm Roberts, um, Matt Canavan, uh, Jared Rennick, and all the independents seem to, be, uh, you know, and the independents seem to be doing in Australian politics. We just don't have anyone talking like that here. And yet we're about to throw ourselves under it. Well, perhaps we're not because this stuff gets kicked down the road. Uh, when we know the cost of net 2020, uh, 2050, it might just back up, back up a bit. But you, you, you've highlighted or we've highlighted a symptom of what's going on in New Zealand. It is this, um, you can't speak up. It's the cancelling of information. It's the, the silencing of an opposing view or a, a view. Um, it's a worrying uh, trend that we have in this country. And uh, yeah, do you, in your lifetime, have you seen it this bad ever before? No, no, I, I've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, and this was part of what uh, grabbed my attention uh, back, uh, you know, 12 years ago when I found that not only couldn't I get any answers, uh, but nobody was prepared to talk about it. Uh, in the political sphere, well, they if they did talk about it, and uh, you know, I'll be honest, uh, I had a number of conversations with people who were inclined to agree with me, but they weren't uh, they weren't about to say that publicly. So that's uh, that's been the way of it. Uh, the the media have had a wall to wall campaign. Uh, when I'm talking the media, I'm not including uh, online media, but everything from radio, television, the press media, they will all have the same talking points almost on the same day, uh, and they reiterate the same message over and over and over again. They don't give you news. Uh, there, there's been some major changes in the last 12 months. Uh, and none of them have appeared, not in the Herald, but nor in Stuff and nor in TV One and nor on Radio New Zealand. So, I mean, this is a cartel which is internationally orchestrated, and all of that is you know, quite transparent. Uh, you, you can go to the, uh, the website of the orchestrators, uh, and they're all quite open about it, but they say it's noble cause. You know, we are here to save the planet, and therefore it's all justified. Now, what's happening, though, how are the public reacting to all this? Because the public's not stupid. Uh, and I know we, we have this assumption that elites take control of the media and take control of the money and then they uh, are the ruling class and the public uh, just go along. I've never really believed that. Uh, I'm a big believer in uh, the public being a, 
the jury, which decides to throw the government out and put a new government in. And if you think they shouldn't have done that, then it's not the public that's wrong, it's you that's wrong. Because the public, I are the people, uh, you know, this is the whole basis of our constitution, that uh, it's uh, representative government and the people make decisions. So the media go to the public and do opinion surveys to find out what they think. I think to a very large degree, those opinion surveys have become a bit of an echo chamber where people just reply, either they refuse to take the, uh, the call or uh, to participate in the survey, or if they do participate in the survey, then they, they give what they think is the right answer. So you think, are you concerned about climate change? Oh, yes, I'm supposed to be concerned. So you say you are. Now, there have been some recent surveys, one in New Zealand, which asked, are you prepared to make sacrifice for climate change, to fight climate change? And it, we discovered that 22% of the public in New Zealand are prepared to, to accept a 10% increase in the price of petrol and electricity. Now, we haven't, we've had a lot more than a 10% increase in those prices, and 22% of the public say they will accept the 10% increase. But that means 78% of the public did not agree to accept a 10% increase. And if you ask, do you think we should do more to fight climate change and the cost is nothing, then you're going to say yes. But if you say, do you think we should do more to fight climate change and your petrol will go up 10%, then 78% say no thanks. Now, exactly. there was an even, there was an even better uh, mm -hmm. revelation in the US uh, just this month on the 8th of March when um, a candidate for the Republican nomination uh, a guy called Vivek Rasaswamy, uh, he said on a Fox News interview uh, that uh, he thought that climate change was a religion. Uh, it had got right away from science, and in fact, it had nothing to do even with climate. It was all about politics and power and control. Well, that caused a bit of a furor in social media. It wasn't even reported in the mainstream media, but it caused a bit of a furor in social media in America. And so Rasmussen Reports, which is a leading survey and opinion polling uh, company, they added a question to their weekly survey asking, do you agree that climate change is a religion which has got nothing to do with the climate and is all about politics and control. And an amazing 60%, 60% of the public said yes. Now, they hadn't had the opportunity to say that before, 
because they'd never been asked questions like that. But when they were asked that question, 60% said they, uh, climate, science is a, climate change is a religion. They also said that it no longer has anything to do with climate and it's all about politics and control. Now, of that 60%, 47% said that they strongly agree. So that's about half. Wow. So half of the likely voters of the United States think that this climate science, this whole climate science thing is a charade. They think it's, they, they say they think it's a religion. They say they think it's about politics. They don't think it's about science. Have we got any reason to believe that it would be different in New Zealand? If no. we were to ask the public, do you agree with this statement, which they did in America? I expect that you'd get about the same result here and that roughly 50% would strongly agree that it's all a put-up job. Uh, It used to be about science. It used to be about, you know, genuine concerns, but it has actually spun off its axis and has now got, is no longer grounded in reality. It's become fantasy. Well, I'm not as positive as you. I look at, uh, as as we talked about before, the the leader of the National Party and and the remonstrating against his uh, his MP. I look at uh, the left of centre... parties i think there's uh there's probably more than that in new zealand would at the moment still believe in having and and have anxiety about climate because of the bombarding they've had for the last uh 10 years effectively so yeah maybe maybe i'm speaking um harshly but i think we've got a long ways to go to to get back um some common sense in this argument but all power to your arm for for uh eloquently putting the case and so just uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up in about another 10 minutes or so or less um, but that the change that happened in what's called the RCP about October last year that went completely under the New Zealand radar you were one of the few commentators to put anything out um, the representative concentration pathway the change in that can you just explain that and the dynamic that that is should have changed for all New Zealand uh, government and local government ins- institutions and any agency that's, that's, that, that's sort of involved in what they called climate change mitigation. Right. Well, this is an, uh, this is an important uh, issue. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the two components of the projections of future climate and uh, if I can, if I can go back to this whole question of climate change, is about global warming, which is about the uh, statistical construct called the global mean surface temperature anomaly, uh, which is an average of changes in thirty-year periods of temperature from numerous different weather stations around the world. world. Now, that is the data 
on which we make predictions about what the future might be. Uh, and there are two components. One is how big will the emissions be? And the other is what is the sensitivity of the climate to all these emissions, right? So you've got one input is the level of emissions. The other input is the impact of various levels of emissions. Right. On the level of emissions side, the, we don't know what the level of emissions is going to be, so the IPCC works on scenarios. But these scenarios were put together uh, initially in 1999, and then they were reviewed and put into a different form uh, around 2012 for the third assessment report. Uh, and they, they, they developed it into four possible pathways. Now, what the IPCC said about those pathways is that they, because they are scientists, they have no opinion about the likelihood of those four different pathways. They're just saying that here is an extremely high one, here is an extremely low one, and here are two middle ones. Uh, and uh, uh, the assumption was back in 20, 2009 when these were adopted that the, uh, the increase in parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would continue to increase at the rate of about three parts per million per year. But since then, 10 years have gone by. In the, in the last 10 years, the amount has not been three parts per million. It's been half a part per million. So the trajectory is now totally different. And so the 2009 four pathways are now down to basically two pathways, the two low ones. Yep. And... Uh, that's been recognised, uh, but it came together in a, uh, a major paper written in 2002 by Pielke, Burgess and Ritchie. Uh, and Ritchie's been working on this for eight years uh, and uh, brought to light a lot more information than we've known in the past. And in that 2002 paper, they showed that the, the highest of the four pathways was impossible, couldn't happen. And so since then, I think almost all the uh, climate scientists around the world seem to have accepted that. Uh, and even the United Nations, for the last uh, uh, COP, uh, conference and COP27 in November. Yep. Yep. So they, uh, the papers prepared for that conference, they dropped the highest pathway. Uh, the International Energy Agency, of which New Zealand is a member, it's made up of the OECD countries, 
uh, and we all pay a lot of money every year to them to tell us what to think. Uh, and that International Energy Agency has said they are not using it anymore. Right? The United Nations Environmental Programme, not using it anymore. The UN Framework for the Climate Change, not using it anymore. But the IPCC, who reported before this paper was published, uh, in their sixth assessment report, they closed off the science that they were studying before that uh, heavyweight paper that I mentioned was published. So the IPCC is looking backwards rather than forwards, and they have still included it. They have included a caveat saying it's, um, uh, it's only 10% likelihood and uh, it's... Uh, Likely. You know, some people don't want to use it, uh, but it's still in there. Now, the New Zealand government is continuing to use it because the IPCC, the Looking Backwards Report, continued to use it as well. But even if you do use it, you have to now consider that most of the world, including three major international agencies, the IEA, United Nations, the UNFCC, have all said it is so unlikely using it all. So if you use it, you can use it as an absolute extreme, but, you know, you don't make policy on that basis. You make policy on the basis of what you think is likely to happen. Uh, however... In New Zealand, the guidance to local government, uh, almost all of the government publications uh, not only include this high pathway, they're about, they're dominated by the highest pathway. About 70% of all the recommendations are based on this, this highest possible pathway. And yeah, uh, I have seen them myself, so you know, coming across uh, in council documents. I have seen those Googling other council ones. They're all, they have tables. They'll tell you that these many wet days and dry days we expect under RCP 8.5 or 6.5. But yet when they're talking about mitigation or adaptation, whatever, we are working with the worst case scenario. And somehow over this time, instead of just talking about, you know, warming or cooling or whatever we are in, Suddenly, every cyclone, every bit of rain is now attributed to human, you know, actions. And but what quantum of it, as Don was saying, how much, where is our insurance can we afford it? And how much is the risk of that? There is, it is like, there is, we might as well drive ourselves to utter penury going down this insanity, but not one politician, civil servant worth their salt will speak up because it's what? Is it political suicide here to talk about this? Well, the IPCC synthesis report, which has come out this week uh, and isn't written by scientists, but has been uh, the, the newspapers full of it. Uh, it says in relation to that high pathway, the 8.5 pathway, uh, it says that there has been doubt cast on it, but it can't be ruled out. 
and as Bielke, as Bielke comments today, uh, an invasion by aliens next week is unlikely but can't be ruled can't out. Can't be ruled out. Are we going to make policy on the basis that there will be an invasion by aliens next week? Are we going to make policy on the basis of this extremely unlikely scenario? Um, I have looked... Sorry, sorry. sorry. Was there any New Zealanders on that synthesis report uh, panel? Was there any New Zealanders in there? Because uh, I'd love to love to know that. Oh yes, we we have a, a New Zealander who wrote the uh, synthesis report. Uh, a professor from uh, Canterbury University called Bronwyn Haywood, uh, and Professor Haywood is. A professor of what would you expect? Political science. That's right. <laughs> He's a professor of political science. Oh, God, you couldn't write and this script I up. Just, uh, I'm just trying to find her. Here we have uh, on uh, the Canterbury University website, Says Professor Bronwyn Haywood is a professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations, and she's the director of the Sustainable Citizenship and Civic Imagination Research Group. What does that even and mean? Her, her research focuses on the intersection of sustainability with youth and citizenship. She's a coordinating lead author for the IPCC AR6 report. Uh, and she's written a couple of books. Her recent books are Climate, Politics and New Zealand. And her other, that was in 2017, and her book in 2012 was Children's Citizenship and the Environment. And her special uh, area of research is children and youth politics. Uh, and she's an expert on the Friday schoolgirl strikes. So oh this, yeah, is the, this is the author of the report, which our media have been telling us all week, uh, how we, well, telling us the same old, same old, you know, we must move immediately. If we don't move within seven days, the world <laughs> will die. And, uh, you know, and it was written by uh, Bronwyn Hayward and other authors uh, who are similarly I have seen another an Indian professor there, that's Deepak Dasgupta. He's, I think, the second or third listed in the synthesis report. He's an economist who writes about green finance. He's written over a hundred papers on that. It's, is it, you know, back to that same old thing of just very predictable, follow the money? Well, there's a lot of tipping points uh, and some of them need to be um, at the edge of where these people walk. Uh, it's really embarrassing to know that we've got people that think they're at the cutting edge of science um, presenting their case uh, with qualifications like this. It's, 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 it's quite pathetic, really. Yeah. Uh, but we've, so it's up to us. It's up to us to change it. And hopefully RCR Radio is going to educate a few people after tonight's interview with Barry and um, make people sit up and think. Absolutely. So, Barry, where all are you visiting now when you're headed off to greener uh, pastures? Yes, I am. <laughs> 
So, well, I wish you all the best with your new re- reality check. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a, a great move forward uh, where we have a, uh, uh, a, a radio, a, uh, a media, a medium, uh, where we can talk about all the things they're not allowed to talk about. It's really strange, isn't it, in, uh, in a democracy that uh, we all know that there are some things we can't talk about. Freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, once that goes, what is left? Well, it's thought control, isn't it? It's George Orwell uh, and uh, his uh, 1984 told us that this could happen. I read 1984 a long time before 1984, and I thought it was fantasy. I, you know, I didn't, really didn't believe we'd get to a stage where there were things where ordinary Kiwis, uh, they could have opinions around uh, you know, at the pub or around the barbecue or, at the, uh, or, or watching sport or whatever, but not if they were going to be publicised. You can't have opinions on certain topics. And uh, climate change is at the head of the list. It is, Barry. And, uh, you know, I, I know we haven't had 107 million chucked at us to um, keep us quiet. So uh, I'm very happy to be part of an independent uh, platform to express opinions uh, in, a, in, a, in a respectful way. And it is, it's certainly going to be an interesting year ahead as we head into these elections and then further on uh, in the rural community, farming especially, the repercussions of this green agenda are pretty, pretty significant. Well, now that we have it out in the open that the green agenda, that the minister believes we need to cull uh, our... uh, Sacred cows. uh, You know, our whole source of uh, national income. Uh, We have to cull the cows, we have to cull the sheep, uh, and... uh, uh, and at a time when nobody else is doing that, right, uh, for reasons which are not really explained, New Zealand needs to lead the world in culling livestock. Uh, and it's very strange. You would have thought that we would have been the very last, and that we would have been pulled into the thing, stri- kicking and struggling and arguing about, you know, first of all, you've got to reduce the size of your SUVs and all the other things. We're not why are cows and sheep at the top of the agenda? You'd have thought that would have been New Zealand's position, right? I mean, New Zealand should be working in its own interests. But instead, now we're running around the world saying, watch us, watch us, we're going to be the first and the greatest of culling livestock. It really doesn't make any sense to me at all. Well, it never made any sense to me either. I mean, we were the first country in the world that could involve <coughs> all, all sectors and all gases. Uh, into uh, the emissions trading scheme and you know, the fact that agriculture biogenic emissions are not being taxed yet is more by luck, I think, than anything. Uh, uh, the nonsense that anyone could think that would be useful. Uh, and and if, in fact, something we haven't even talked about tonight is the GWP uh, and how that's been embellished to make the New Zealand agriculture quantum uh, of greenhouse gases look way, way above what uh, they really should be in terms of their potency. And a, and a mountain in terms of the New Zealand inventory. And of course, no one seems to be 
as yeah, I know we've talked about what's called global warming potential star, and that may um, that has quite a significant change on things. But still, no one's willing to really nail that home and tell the country that we've been uh, for at least fifteen years now, maybe more, told that agriculture is 48% of the New Zealand emissions profile. It's just not. And today I read a Fonterra um, a rep a report, sorry, it was in the Farmers Weekly, and it talked about climate emissions. Didn't talk about greenhouse gas emissions anymore. It talked about animal climate emissions. So the narrative's changed again. I mean, I, it, how much longer can we be subjected to this unprecedented abuse? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Well, changing the language is all part of the control and politics uh, aspect of the uh, uh, of this topic, which sixty percent of Americans say is all about politics and power and control. However, uh, I think as far as the uh, the, the the farming uh, or the, or the New Zealand's total emissions which are assumed to be like 47% of them uh, based on farm emissions, largely biogenic methane. Uh, and that's based on a 2003 GWP method, which is totally discredited, absolutely discredited, right? The IPCC agrees that it's wrong. Uh, Miles Allen, professor from... Oxford University, who's a leading IPCC author, he says it's wrong. Uh, the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, Simon Upton, he says it's wrong. Uh, our leading climate scientist, Professor David Frame, he says it's wrong. Everybody says it's wrong, and yet the media tell us every day that 47% of our emissions are caused by the farmers. As we say, non-jobs, non-jobs have been created. They are very lucrative and let nothing stop the gravy trains. 100% right. And, and, you know, it's intriguing. Um, David Frame, Professor Frame, talks about uh, farmers need to pay for past warming from their emissions. <laughs> I mean, we're talking um, thousands of a degree per century, and he wants us to pay for past warming. It's like they're trying to justify something that will make a compliance regime from hell. Now, you just have to look at pharma magazines at the moment, and the consultants are positively salivating at the number of jobs that they've created through know your, know your number, measure your emissions, all this stuff. I mean, it's like um, Professor Frame is now trying to back up the bus a long way, but he still says there needs to be something there to give these people their jobs. I mean, I'm that cynical about it now. If you're talking... Methane can only uh, have a warming effect in the thousandth of a degree per century from New Zealand, uh, sorry, from animals around the world, methane emissions from animals. What are we beating ourselves up about? And, and to be told that there needs to be something done for past warming, it's, it just looks like self-serving nonsense to me. And how do you isolate out of all of that? How do you isolate that? This is the effect on global temperature. So how much has the New Zealand temperature been affected? You go and try pushing this nonsense on a farmer in India and they'll tell you exactly where to go. You know? And well, there is 300, India has plus, a lot 300 plus million cows that are not accounted for. <laughs> That's right. I... um. Well, 
I, I, I agree, Don, but, you know, the fundamental arguments are that New Zealand is only uh, producing 0.16% of the greenhouse gases, uh, that New Zealand is, if you were to count the Fiordland uh, native bush, which is not counted, but if you were to count that, then New Zealand overall is a net carbon sink. So that if New Zealand were to disappear in a puff of smoke, the world would get warmer uh, because we actually help the world cool because we absorb more carbon than we emit. Uh, now, these facts are always buried. Uh, the, the argument that the farmers are causing 47% of it is flat out wrong, right? Flat out wrong. You cannot find a scientist anywhere in the world who will tell you that the GWP is right. Nobody says the GWP is right. There's plenty of argument about whether the GWP asterisk is right or something else is right. But the number that we keep hearing over and over it's, it's is like wrong. these last three years, there has been COVID modeling, you know, there have been climate modeling. I have just gotten really, really cynical because never have the numbers that have fallen down at the bottom added up. And now when we are in a recession, depending on what reports you believe, we are heading into a recession, we are in a recession. Isn't that the best time to play fast and lose at whatever little uh, money there is left in the treasury? Well, I, uh, I, there's a budget coming up. I expect mm -hmm. that at a time when New Zealanders are expecting the budget to do something to fight inflation, to do something to help us cope with inflation, that this budget is going to spend a whole lot of money on fighting climate change. So you're saying you're going to add fuel to the fire now? Ooh. Well, the Minister of Finance has said that there will be major spending on climate change in the budget because just recently the Prime Minister has said that they are going to do away with a uh, uh, billion dollars worth of expending, which the Green Party were upset about, a billion dollars worth of spending, which the Prime Minister now tells us wasn't very important and didn't make much difference. And therefore, he's got a billion dollars, which he can spend on something else. Uh, and of course, that upset the Greens. Uh, and the Prime Minister is quite right. They, it, the, the several policies that he, uh, he cancelled, including the speed limits down to 80 all over the country, uh, and uh, you know, a whole, whole lot of silly uh, policies, they have now been cancelled, not cancelled, they've been put on ice until after the election. But, uh, and that saved a billion dollars, one billion dollars. Uh, and so the Greens are upset. And so the Minister of Finance has given them an assurance that the budget that's upcoming will spend a lot of money on fighting climate change. Now, we've been talking tonight uh, 
we nobody can tell us what the benefit is. Nobody can tell us what we get for spending a billion dollars. Do we get a half a degree? Do we get a tenth of a degree? Exactly. You, we all know you don't get anything like that. You don't even get a thousandth of a degree. So why are we spending it? No answer. Ideology? Is it a cult? Who knows? But it is certainly not in our best interest, the pathway that we are uh, heading down. And I expect to see a lot more fireworks on this this front. Well, and the, and the damning thing is, um, and to me as a, as a primary industry player, um, the money that's gone into um, greenhouse gas consortia and the like, and it's ongoing, and now we've got regenerative agriculture money and all sorts of stuff coming at us. Let's get back to doing real stuff um, that we used to do. I mean, New Zealanders, as I say, we've already got our ETS. We've got an efficiency trading scheme. It's called subsidy-free farming. It should be the gold standard, uh, and New Zealand should be proud of it. Um, but they still want to um, have another go a different way. I think we became too efficient and too uh, and too. Um, we weren't watching our back is probably how you could say it. Um, we've been been asleep at the wheel and uh, I think the rubber's going to hit the road and we just need to, um, as a sector, stand up. The trouble is every bit of media, rural media I, I read now, has people that are sold into the system, sold into sustainability or regenerative futures and all this sort of stuff and they're all, they're all milking the system. They've all got a... Got a, got a Got a bit of a bite of the cherry over here out of Mr. O'Connor's, Minister O'Connor's pie. And I don't know how you stop this rot. It's like a cancer that just spreads where people um, think that you can put your hand out and uh, chase the legislation and, and live by it. And I find that offensive, but perhaps that's where we are as a country. Anyway. Well, uh, we know that the media... Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, now um, have no credibility with, uh, what is it, over 70% of the public simply don't believe, they say in surveys, they don't believe what the media tells them. Uh, and you say that the rural media have now joined the, the mob, uh, but that's no surprise because most of the media is... Uh, at you know at the top of the tree owned by the same owners, and they all have have made the decision that they have a position, and that editorial position will be enforced throughout all publications, and it is. So what it really requires is the public, that is the ordinary Joe, the voter, to say they've had enough. Uh, that uh, this has gone far enough and I'm going to look for someone to vote for who's going to say, I'm not going to blindly keep following this line. I'm going to at least have some inquiries. I'm going to get you some information or something rather than saying I will toe the party line. And I think there will be candidates who will be putting that before the public this year. And now it's over to us. We either vote for them or put up with the same old rubbish that we've been getting? Well, I don't, I think the rubbish we've been getting the last five years is, um, is at top of the class uh, in my lifetime. So <laughs> hopefully we can, um, you know, if that's top of the class, we need a few, um, 
few dancers in the corner perhaps to uh, follow because this it, it can't go on this uh this uh borrow and hope and spill money and, and create inflationary pressures it's just uh, it's you know 30 or 40 my whole working life to make basically i could say has been trashed in five years uh the, the devaluation of everything i've ever owned um is has happened as, as it has for all of us here and listening probably the devaluation of the, the currency of our dollar is something that didn't need to happen but under the name of um covid they borrowed and spilled and printed a lot of cash so we're paying the price i you know i i think to wind this up i think chickens are coming home to roost the pain is now unescapable for most of us so we are scraping the bottom of the barrel and there's just one way up from this up i don't think we can sink much lower but i i could stand to be corrected of course just when you think you hit <laughs> I it i wish you were right <laughs> yeah <laughs> well yeah i think the squat age rage here barry between us all and um and i just hope the younger people uh start to wake up and and smell the smell the coffee or smell the roses as they say because uh things can be so much better for them but they are slowly falling into this 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 controlled life uh ahead of them and it won't be pleasant it's not what i want it's i know certainly not what i want for my grandchildren so let's hope the young people can wake up and they're not all like the the chloes and the uh the uh anxious schoolgirls that um turn up on uh the climate birthday or whatever it was called yeah. yeah so barry it's um it's been a great pleasure to have you on i mean uh, it's 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 been a long recording and uh i blindsided you a little bit by asking you to put a whole lot more effort into the to the back story here uh but i think it's really really useful uh it certainly helped me i don't i don't read as much as you guys and uh uh I like to cherry pick what I think is believable and uh, right and um it's sort of my moniker is simplicity is in truth and I think tonight we've um in this interview we've uh we've actually managed to simplify stuff for people who have probably in many ways not uh it's so complex they just haven't been interested to uh, to understand it so hopefully they've um got a bit of a better understanding and I just want to thank you uh for your contribution and it's our first interview on um reality check radio greenwashed our first uh interview yes. with a special guest so um you've you've got that honor that number one honor and we appreciate it so thanks Barry thank you so much Ned. Well, really appreciate it your time tonight thank you to uh just praise and don uh and uh uh Finally, can I just say, nil disparandum, put your faith in the voters. They'll deliver. <laughs> sure thing. Yeah. Thank All you right. so much. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.